Welcome to Turf Dudes, show number 42. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Jim Brosnan, professor at the University of Tennessee, and Josh Cook, superintendent of Pensacola Country Club in Pensacola, Florida, for a conversation on annual bluegrass management in non-overseeded, dormant, and semi-dormant Bermuda grass turf. Annual bluegrass is recognized as one of the most challenging weeds to control in fine turf. Extreme adaptability, resistance to multiple herbicide modes of action, and prolific seed production are a few reasons why annual bluegrass is the number one weed control focus of many turf managers. Dr. Brosnan has conducted extensive research on both detection and management of annual bluegrass herbicide resistance. Josh has extensive applied experience in management and control of herbicide-resistant annual bluegrass on a golf course. Together, these guys have a tremendous amount of knowledge which is valuable to turf managers across the United States. Turf Dudes is a Herald's agronomy team collaboration of Dr. Raymond Snyder, Dr. Paul Giordano, and myself, Dr. Jeff Atkinson. Raymond, Paul, and I serve as directors of agronomy for Herald's. Enjoy the show. Well, guys, appreciate you joining us today. This is something kind of unique for us. This is the first time, as far as I'm aware, we've had superintendents on the podcast before. We've had university academics on the podcast before, uh, but I don't know that we've ever had them together on the podcast at the same time. So today we're joined by Dr. Jim Brosnan of University of Tennessee and Josh Cook, superintendent at Pensacola Country Club. And the topic of conversation today is herbicide resistance, specifically as it relates to annual bluegrass herbicide resistance. And so, uh, Jim, you joined us based on your expertise in the subject, and Josh, you've joined us based on your experience and thereby expertise in the subject in a different kind of ways. So thank you both guys for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Jeff. Always always uh, fun to chat about POA and, and POA control on golf courses. I mean, certainly, and Josh can attest to this, it has become uh, far more of a challenge in 2022 than maybe it was when we were in school back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of interesting for us to be having this conversation because I feel like, you know, Jim was the one who kind of started the conversation uh, or, or for me, and, and in my experience at the time, we certainly had hints of it, um, but uh, it's uh, a lot of his warnings and concerns have proven to be uh, prophetic at this point, and uh, I, I, uh, I took him seriously then, but it's different when you're you know, really experiencing uh, the challenge of it uh, in real time, where it's, it's le- less of a thought exercise than an actual, you know, looking at, you know, some very large amounts of content POA on your annual bluegrass on your golf course, a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, so, per- prophetic seems like a strong word, but you're a kind man, Josh. I mean, I, I think for <laughs> me, uh, you know, this is one where, you know, I do a lot of speaking and extension settings, whether that's chapter GCSAA functions, national GCSAA, things like this. And, you know, when the, the first reports were happening, I'd give presentations about that and and without fail, I'd conclude the presentation and somebody would come up to me afterwards and say, hey, doc, I think uh, I think I might have some of what you're talking about. Can you come pay me a visit? And I yeah. kind of think things just kind of snowballed from there in terms of the awareness of this uh, was raised pretty, pretty swiftly. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think back on Jim, I probably referenced this too many times, but since we're talking amongst new people, I can say it again, but I, I still remember seeing one of your talks 
uh, I think early when I was at Oak Tree. So this, you know, would have been in 2012, uh, maybe 13. And you had a slide talking about, um, and I think this is why it feels prophetic to me in a little ways is you had a slide, you know, talking about uh, a fungicide program and our concerns with fungicides for resistance and, and how complicated it was. And then you put up what really was a very realistic herbicide plan that was not, you know, was not particularly dynamic. Uh, it was something that was going to be essentially repeated forever, you know, and you made some comment that, you know, we need these plans to start looking more like the way you're building these fungicide plants. And it was hard to imagine that 10 years ago or, you know, however long it was. And if you were to look at a spreadsheet of what we're doing from a, you know, herbicide standpoint, not just for POA, uh, but in general, but certainly with regards to POA and particularly spreading it out over, you know, three, four or five years, it actually does now look a lot like fungicide programs, you know, were being constructed. And I think that's for the better. It's certainly, I, you know, have spent a disproportionate amount of time uh, with, on thinking about herbicides than probably any other portion of our programming. Um, and that's certainly reflective of the challenges of uh, annual bluegrass resistance and concerns about goosegrass resistance, not that that's the subject for today. Um, so it feels prophetic to me because you're, you're right. Our plans needed to look more like those fungicide programs, and now they're starting to, and, and that's, that's for the better. So, Josh, I guess through that perspective, or just give us a, or give us at least some perspective, how much or what types of resistance do you know you have on, on property? Well, the, let's see if I can remember off the top of my head. Uh, I guess the language we got was suspected resistance to group two, suspected resistance to group three, suspected resistance to group five. And I want to say, I can't remember, there's one that was like a total oddball that was suspected resistance to um, what was that? I was like, I can't even believe that, that how that happened is probably just something. <laughs> uh, that the two, three and five are the ones that have been the ones we've had to manage around um, and think a lot about um, on our golf course. And being as far south as we are, um, we don't have the luxury of you can use some non-selective um, sometimes, but it's with a more dramatic cost or obvious cost to it than if we were even a couple hours farther north. Um, so having to work around the issues with the two, three and five has uh, been interesting and um, was ugly my first year here. I, when I got here in March, you just saw POA everywhere. I mean, it was, I've never seen that much that wasn't in an intentional turf plot at a you know, <laughs> university setting. And so I'm looking back at records trying to guess, and it's like it's a little bit unclear that how accurate the records are. And then you're trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and think how they were thinking. And then you're trying to get feedback from the people who were here and you're not really sure how accurate what you're being told is. And which is not a really a criticism of anybody. It's just hard getting to know somewhere. And so I, I guess that we had group two from what I saw I in and um, should have guessed in hindsight that we had group three. But our first year was really ugly. You know, we did uh, 
did a curb dimension uh, program because they're products they hadn't used on the property as far as I knew in a really long time. And it, you know, basically did absolutely nothing. I mean, it went from being a really bad problem to an even worse one. And uh, I think at that point, we, I had a better sense of just how kind of pressed our backs were against the wall and, and, and frankly felt very desperate um, to do some problem solving and get creative and do some different stuff. It's been an interesting struggle, but we've gotten better. I'm really proud. I mean, I will say it's one of the, we've gotten to, I would never say we're hundred percent clean, but we're pretty clean. And, uh, you know, it's one of the things I'm actually more proud of that I've accomplished in my career. Really. I mean, I, we worked hard to get here and had to get lucky and have some good breaks and have lots of conversations like this one. And Jim is, I probably am indebted to him for, you know, a long, long time for all of his assistance and encouragement. So it was interesting and uh, continues to be. Well, and, and Josh, I'm sure you'd say that, you know, it's no singular herbicide that no. has gotten to you to the point of having this uh, a problem that you kind of have uh, at least managed. Yeah. I mean, it's really a testament to the kind of maybe difficult thought exercises that you went through looking at your property going, yep. how am I going to use a limited set of tools because I've got resistance to ALS inhibitors and, and mitotic inhibitors and photosystem two inhibitors, as you mentioned, how am I going to take the limited suite of tools I have and use it in a way that's going to be effective and, and sustainable yep. over time? I'm sure that had to be pretty hard. Well, it was, I mean, it just felt like our hands were tied behind our back. And, I, and the thing I always try to say in these conversations, I'm just going to go ahead and get it out of the way is if you are at a property that does not have resistance currently, get started on your rotations, get started right now on your mixing chemistries and using multiple chemistries. You're in a position of power. You're in a position where you improve the odds, I would put it that way, of not developing resistance right now uh, with some thoughtful programs because this gets really expensive when you start to lose products and chemistries because invariably the ones we lose are the cheapest ones usually. Um, mm -hmm. And so that changes the game quite a bit. Um, you know, Jim, I think one of the things that was really um, two things that were really helpful. I had a conversation and I know this is a Harold's talk, but if I had I have to give this gentleman credit. I was talking with Doug Webb from Regal and he had just kind of off the cuff said, well, you know, we've had some guys in the rest of Florida using a lot of Ronstar and with regards to POA. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, that's a really good idea. Like that's something I don't think this property is used in the, you know, at least in a fall setting, winter setting. And, and that was a really good idea. And then I think it was in one of your talks, Jim, but it was certainly in another resistance talk, but there was something about, um, you know, rotations are great, but like mixing chemistries together, actually an ag has been more successful with fending off resistance. And because part of the concern was for me, I believe from what I could tell that spectacle was still going to be a useful tool. I was concerned about using a lot of spectacle with our soils being as sandy as they are. And then you're also sitting there being like, if we were to use this so much that we lost it, then we're really in trouble. And so between the idea of sprinkling in Ronstar and using spectacle, we thought if we use with some of Jim's research, if we use spectacle and Ronstar together, we could reduce the amount of spectacle we needed to put down annually. And 
we thought that would help protect both of those chemistries to some degree. Uh, we had had just by sheer dumb luck a number of we made a number of applications in the fall. Be clear, I am not promoting this. I'm not saying anybody shouldn't try it, but I don't. I'm not going to say it's a work. But we used Halo Sulfuron for use in cleaning up some sedges, and everywhere we seemed to spray it for some reason, we tended to be a little cleaner in POA. And so that's, you know, one of those things we just kept seeing and kind of thought, well, let's give this a shot and could try it on a larger scale and larger format. And then I don't even remember why exactly we ended up throwing simazine into the, into the whole concoction. But I think the hope was, is once again, if we put enough chemistries together that they'll kind of help fill in the deficiencies. We knew we had some resistance to group two, but it wasn't complete. Like we, you know, you'd go out and spray and you'd maybe, you know, control half of what was there. And so we were just hoping that if we, fairness, I should back up this. The second year, we did just do bronze star straight and granular. And that was a big improvement over where we were. It felt a little bit tricky with timing. Mm-hmm. And I thought we kind of, um, it, we were better on the front end and worse on the back end. I think some of that, in hindsight, after that happened, I think I saw another talk at Jim's and he was talking about trying to really identify your pole window. And that was obvious thing to do in some ways, but I really hadn't thought about it. And I, I had been farther north. And I think a lot of my timings, I was thinking more in terms of being in Tennessee or Oklahoma. And I think we went early on our round star, which in general, you're going, man, we'd rather be early than late with pre-emerge. But I think there's limits on that, obviously. And Anyways, it it helped, but it felt like we needed something that was a little bit more dynamic than that, that we kind of have that pre-post combination where we could push the pre-emergent a little bit later and hope that we could clean some of the POA if it did germinate early up in that application. That's kind of how we ended up with the four products we put together. And um, short of some, you know, skips and stuff like that, we really... It really went well the first year, and we tweaked it again the second year. And the neat part for me now is is I think we're getting to a point where and we're getting ideas enough to be able to actually do a multi-mode of action rotation as we move forward, where every year we'll have multiple modes of action out there, but different ones, and, and hoping that'll help promote the health of the turf and continue to fight this resistance struggle and just stay out in front of it and, and, uh, and hopefully have relatively clean winters. Um, but it's, it's been an interesting process and it's been, as Jim said, it has been, it was, I mean, I spent a lot of energy and time and thought trying to put these pieces together and owe a lot of gratitude to people like Jim, you know, who are willing to have conversations and talk about it and be sounding boards for it because it, the path forward wasn't particularly clear all the time, but it really has been satisfying and it's been interesting and I've learned a lot and, and I think we're probably better for it. But It's going to get mur- a little bit more murky again now with the oxidiazon changes too, right? I mean, you've been relying for fall Ronstar applications. You're combined with other things, obviously. Yep. And now with the EPA ruling that you can only treat 30% of your managed turf acreage yep. in a year, Yep. Well, that makes that makes things a little trickier in terms of prioritizing when and where the oxidizer can be most helpful. Correct. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, 
you're you're 100 right. And you know, at the time when it came out, I mean, one, I was really grateful we didn't lose the chemistry. I mean, I think that would have that would have been uh, really hard. I mean, I think that would have been hard to short of something falling in our laps. I don't know how the that there was a real obvious because it's become so critical for both Poa and obviously the uh, warm season component. But I felt really lucky. We probably 10 days, two weeks ahead of that, we, you know, had just finalized uh, our three-year rotation for the entire herbicide plan, which conveniently almost split the property up into thirds anyways. And so first, I'm just like, not thrilled or, or aggravated or confused about what we wanted to do and how we wanted to move forward with it. And then at some point I was like, well, we could literally just do this rotation in real time. You know, we're going to chop the golf course into thirds and, you know, we'll have one big test trial out there and it'll be like anything new. We're going to have to learn a lot and we'll be surprised, I'm sure, of some of the challenges that we can't see. And but I also think we'll probably, I mentioned this to Jim in a previous conversation, I, I think we'll learn a lot from it. You know, I mean, there, there has always been something, I think there's a way in which we can miss pieces because we're treating the property all the same. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we always can see the secondary and tertiary impacts of what we're doing because you don't have a check plot out there very often. And so I, I'm wondering if we're going to get out and do this and have the property split in thirds and go, man, this product is much harder on our turf than we ever realized. Or we didn't realize when we used this other thing that we're picking up additional weeds that we didn't even think were issues because we've been doing it the entire place wall to wall. There's no way to catch on to that. And so I think we'll learn a lot. I think we'll be able to see some of the gaps and weaknesses and strengths of these products, and we'll probably understand them better than we would have if we continued on the path we were on. Mm-hmm. You know, even being on a three-year rotation, I'm not, not sure we would be sophisticated enough to go, man, we, you know, have a lot less dollar wheat this year than normal. I bet that's just random or fluky, whether it could have been tied, obviously, to some of the products that we used or didn't use. So anyways, I, I think it'll be an interesting, interesting experience. And most of all, at the end of the day, I'm really grateful we still have Ronstar because uh, oxidizing, as Jim said, has been critical um, for our property, you know, getting clean and getting out in front of our POA issues. It's pretty critical change as well to that method to be able to split your course into threes. That's a unique concept. But Jim, I know you were pretty, pretty involved with having that change from Originally, it was written where it was fairways only to have it now where it's 30% of your total property. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of that was motivated from a place of wanting to be able to use the product on all surface types across the entirety of the U.S. Where, you know, it'd be very easy to think about, well, how do we use Ronstar Flow on fairways in Tennessee, right? And then end the thinking there. But there's a big portion of this country that relies on... Um, say oxidazon benzylide on a granular carrier as the, maybe their only residual chemistry on putting greens. And if that goes away as a tool, well, then that's pretty pretty cumbersome for those superintendents to deal with. And I think it's one of the, the tricky parts when you think about a national ruling about an AI. Well, it's a big country with a lot of different <laughs> nuances in terms of how we need to control weeds on in turf grass and on golf courses and, you know, and 
we're focused exclusively on golf in this conversation. I mean, another huge win was that it was going to be deleted from sports turf, hard stop. And, and that didn't happen. Um, that's, you think about a, a residual chemistry with, with, does not affect roots. I mean, that is really important in the, uh, particularly the higher end athletic field scenarios, uh, professional and college and, and so forth. But what does the 30, if you're dividing your course up into thirds, what does that look like from a practical standpoint? Are you, um, how are you dividing, dividing that up? Well, we, we were going to, our, our, you know, where this ends, obviously, is, you know, speculation. It's speculative at this point. We, it may change. My intention at this point is, for our purposes, is we haven't been using much oxidizone on putting greens. And we've used other chemistries there and are seem, seem to be doing okay. We are planning on basically splitting the property up into thirds, as in, you know, basically six holes will get this treatment, six holes will get this treatment, six holes will get this treatment. Now, maybe that doesn't work out long term, you know, and we end up feeling like, you know, this isn't working great and we need to put more resources into, say, the short grass areas. And those become the ones that are consistently getting the third and we're doing something different in the rough. And it's possible, you know, just talking out loud, it's possible that gets there. And you talk in our case, you talk yourself into going we can tolerate some use of non-selective in taller heights of grass that we can't shorter heights of grass. And so now that's just what we're signing up for as part of this control strategy and living with, you know, the rough appearing a skosh dormant, you know, and, and dinged up in the winter. We're putting all of our Ron star in the, the short grass areas. I don't think it'll come to that. I think we can chop it up into six holes. Those six holes kind of will rotate, you know, what basically getting Ron star every, three years and, and the other ones in it in the other years getting uh, some different products and chemistries. And, um, that, that's what, how we intend to move forward, but there's obviously other ways you could do it. And we, and I can't say definitively we won't, but that's how we're going to try start now. Jim, I'm curious from a, from the more academic point of view, you've, you published a interesting paper a while back ago that did a survey of all, not all Tennessee golf courses, but a lot of Tennessee golf courses to try to document the, presence of different types of resistance within the state can you give us kind of an overview of that and some of the findings and just a general scope of resistance as a whole uh, that you're able to document yeah it was a lot next question <laughs> <laughs> no i mean in, 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 all, in all seriousness it uh it was a really cool project and you know need to thank uh, EIFG supported it so the, the research arm of GCSAA as well as our state chapter and you know, it, it involved going to 30 golf courses in each region of our state, so east, middle, and west. And then rather than visioning with somebody like Josh and saying, okay, take me to, you know, I'm here to collect POA, take me take me where I need to go, that inevitably is going to lead to the worst possible situation, right? The, the hole with the most pressure, the, the worst failures, et cetera. Um, we randomly picked a hole in the property using a random number generator, 1 to 18, would walk that hole, collect any plants that were present over a density of, I believe, 10 plants per square meter, bring them back to the greenhouse, grow them out for seed, and then screen them for resistance to all of the major modes of action um, used in turf. And 
I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me, but in 2017, we were uh, more than a uh, 50% likelihood. I think it was almost 57 or 60% likelihood of having some level of glyphosate resistance. Uh, so that's randomly going out to a hole in a golf course, better than a coin flip that that plant's going to be uh, uh, glyphosate resistant to some level. Uh, very similar with Barricade. Um, with Simazine, at least in our state, the number was really, really high, uh, upwards of almost uh, 90% likelihood. What was uh, interesting to me was that we had 25% of the, the golf courses you had resistance to at least two modes of action. And in 4% of the cases, they were resistant to everything that we uh, screened them against. Now, and keep in mind, that sounds pretty stark, and it is. But that's not every plant on the property. And I think that that's important for superintendents to realize that, you know, every failure you have isn't a blanket resistance failure. I think it's part of kind of a matrix that is making POA control more difficult and a really important part. Um, I think that's one. I also think would be remiss if, you know, we didn't acknowledge that we're coming off of two seasons in the golf industry of record play in my part of the world and in Josh's part of the world, a lot more shoulder season play um, than we've ever had before. And an environment now where it's kind of in vogue to have single rider golf carts. So we're having more golf cart traffic uh, just with normal rounds. You couple that with more rounds of more golf cart traffic. I kind of think in the spring of 2022, we hit a little bit of a breaking point where the, the cumulative effect of all of that plus this resistance issue led to some really, really um, uh, difficult POA situations on golf courses this spring. Is there a technique for scouting for resistance or scouting strategies to identify these POA escapees? So, I mean, I think there's no like textbook technique I can give you. Um, and I'm sure Josh has done this and can comment too. I mean, I think the first thing to keep in mind is knowing where where you sprayed and what to expect, right? So if you if you have good records of I went out on this hole with chemistries X Y X Y and Z, and it's forty percent POA five weeks later, well, that that's that's a red flag, right? You know, and <laughs> and with residual chemistry, that's what it would look like. I think on the post emergent side, it's a lot easier. Um, because you kind of get the polka dotted appearance of affected plants intermixed with non-affected plants. And that's um, a red flag for, for resistance for sure. You know, Jeff's seen this in presentations and, and Josh has too. Like, you know, I like to joke that if you went out and sprayed signature and daconil on your bent grass and you were left with, you know, 60% dollar spot coverage, um, you probably wouldn't just aw shucks walk away, right? You'd dig a little deeper into why that might have happened. And I don't think that that happens enough with our herbicide applications. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny because it does feel like there, for some reason, we have this fear of acknowledging the possibility of resistance, you know, being there. And it's you'll get a lot of, ah, it might be a skip, you know, <laughs> if it, you know, and it, and I don't even know why. I mean, it's better to it would be better really to assume I had resistance and make changes accordingly than to assume I didn't. But uh, there is something from a mentality purpose, I think, can be uh, tricky to embrace that possibility. 
Uh, we we didn't we had the luxury of it being so bad. It was it was hard to uh, come <laughs> enough excuses, you know, uh, for for why we were just overseeded with annual bluegrass. Um, but it, well, it, it, it's tricky to get there. And I think another big part of this is you know going back to where we started this conversation is you know spending the mental capital to really think through how you're going to approach this. And I think far too often. You know, it, it's hard to be a superintendent, right? And the time at which you would have to do this is going to be a busy time on the golf course. Like we're sitting here, we're recording this in the summer. And if you haven't thought through how you're going to approach POA for this fall and winter, you're probably late, right? And I think far too often the thought process behind what's going to happen doesn't occur until we're deep enough kind of into the air quotes POA season Yep. that a lot of your most effective options are kind of been exhausted and you're in, already into a limited set of tools available for what you can do. And, you know, I'd encourage any superintendents listening to, to really sink your teeth into thinking through this problem months in advance of when you are going to need to actually do something about it. Yep. So, yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the, and I think the thing that also is tough about it is, you know, that that is different still than, uh, you know, you think about the cost of a daffodil application or, you know, whatever product. I mean, you know, most of our, most of these fungicides that we're putting in most cases on budding greens, you know, you have so many shots at it, really. You know, there's just not that many applications in that setting where you're like, this one application, everything's riding on it. You know, it's like you're sitting there and it's a blanket of, you know, approach that like you're hoping that the strength and numbers, you know, at the end of the day, you'll come out ahead of it. I think the herbicide one's a little bit different and particularly when you're used to thinking about it in one or two applications and all of a sudden it's like, okay, if we're going to do it in one, or we're going to do it in two, we really got to have executed a thought out. And I, I don't know that there's a lot of other stuff that we've do that we're trained to be able to think that thoroughly about timing, adjusting timing, you know, do we making, you know, having a plan, making adjustments to the plan, tweaking the plan. And um, so I, I, I do think it's a, it's a hard one to, to execute and pull off. It's hard to come up with the plan and it's hard to have the plan work in real time. And it, it does take a lot of um, thought and just like, it kind of feels like for me that it's something we're always thinking about a little bit all the time. It's helped to kind of embrace that as just being like, yeah, this is the job. Like this is the most important thing that maybe I do for the club is doing this thought exercise and, and finding fun people to talk to like Jim about it and other people can make the process exciting. But I do think it's hard. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I don't think we should dismiss that it is a really challenging thing uh, to pull off. And it's hard when you're like, we really need these two applications to go really, really well. Um, otherwise this isn't going to be great. That's stressful. So. so Josh, following up on that. So, you know, you talked about dividing the golf course into thirds in large part because of the oxidase unruling, which is great. And inevitably you're going to do your level best to try to have all three of those thirds mm -hmm. really effective programs and be clean. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it's probably not going to end up being the case. You're probably going to have maybe one of those thirds better than the other two. Yep. How do you how do you communicate to your membership 
this is where we're at. We're going to have to divide the golf course into thirds. We're going to try some different things. I'm hoping it all goes great and, 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 you know, fingers crossed it will, but it might not like, what's that conversation like? Well, you know, I mean, I think one, the, the probably the most important thing that you've mentioned right there is just that you're having a conversation, you know, like I think these are the kind of things that we do better to as, as, as much as is appropriate for the audience, you get out in front of that conversation as soon as possible. You begin to lay expectations. You begin to allow people to understand where we're headed and what we're doing and say, we think this is a good plan. Make them understand that there is a plan. I mean, I, I will, I, I, just as an anecdote, you know, one of the things we did in my previous, that oak tree when I was there was we had a big eight by four whiteboard that basically laid the entire year out and we chopped it then up into greens, fairways, tees, and all the different areas of the property and put down every single application that we thought we were going to make once we had agreed on the agronomic plan. Um, some, I like the visual of being able to look at it in that format and it helps me to see gaps and stuff. But it was always humorous to me that our owner of the property on on number of multiple occasions, I would just like catch him looking at this board and he knew none of the products, you know, <laughs> like there was, there was not, he, he had no expertise. And I remember at one point just kind of touching base and, you know, and, and he basically said like, this board makes me happy because I know we have a plan. And I think that getting out, I think that's a understandable sentiment. And I think most people will feel comforted going, knowing I have one, a person that we respect and think has this expertise. And two, they've done the legwork and the thought processes and have come up with a real plan. And we have the people in place to execute said plan. And I think most people are reasonable enough to understand that not every plan works perfectly, you know, and will be absolutely seamless. And, and I, and I, I think sometimes we get in our own way by projecting that that's going to be the expectation. Um, And certainly we would love for that to happen. I mean, if you told me we had nary a POA plan on our property next year, I would be tickled. Even, you know, even if we weren't chopping it up in the thirds, that's not realistic. So I think the big thing is the community getting out in front, explaining, you know, where we're headed and what we're doing. And, and I think selling them on the positive parts of it. I mean, I think there's, you know, there, there's, there are, there is going to be some real upsides. We are going to learn a lot of stuff and I do think we'll ultimately be better for the challenges of it, but I think you have to get out and talk about it. And, you know, one of the things that you can sell on this new setup is we're essentially putting down the same amounts of products every single year. And so you don't have, you know, one of the things that was, is challenging with doing rotations I found is the cost of the products are different. So if you're putting something down expensive one year, and something that's less expensive than next. It, the, they love it when you go from the expensive to the less expensive right. product. You know, it's like you're a hero. Uh, but it's it's harder to be like, so we were clean last year, and you're now wanting to do this other thing that's going to cost an additional $10,000 to do, and we're going to have to expand the budget for. That part actually isn't there anymore. I mean, it's essentially just going to be, you know, the increase in cost. Of all the products, you know, year to year, but it won't be because, you know, you're doing something that one year that's $35,000 and then it's, you know, $25,000 the next year. And 
and that and that's an upside. Um, not that that should matter, but it does. Um, and 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 from a conversation standpoint, and working with controllers and bookkeepers and all that fun stuff, uh, they'll be happy about that part of it. So, but no, I think the big part really is what you said is get is, is having those conversations, having them ahead of time, and and not you know surprising people and being like, well, you know, we made these changes and we thought this might happen, and everybody's like, well, why didn't you say something? You know, mm. get out in front of it. Uh, would be would be the biggest thing I'd say, and hopefully you know you have a good relationship with the you know whoever's above you, your general manager, uh, committees, owners, however however the kind of format of the club is, and 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 you know you can kind of work towards helping them understand. I mean, I think that's the thing is I I think most people like my experience of it is is we talk about them as golf clubs, and I think part of being in a club is having this sense of like. You know, I'm a part of something. I know what's going on. I know something more than like this guy who's not in our club. Right. And so I think I think if you can make people feel part of it and they understand what's happening, what's going on, I think it can be fun for them. And I think it makes them feel a little bit like an insider, which they should be. It's their club. They're the ones paying the dues for it. You know, they're on your committees potentially and and having some influence and let them be a part of it. Let them be fun. That part of it, you know, it's sure you want them to have fun playing golf or bridge or being at the pool or whatever, playing tennis, whatever the, it can be fun that way, but it can be fun in other ways as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, I've always not, this is the subject, but I've always, my number one goal for our committee, for our greens and grounds committee here is, is I want it to be something that people enjoy being a part of. Like I want them to walk away from the meetings and be like, that's cool. I like being in that committee and I have fun being in there. And, you know, sometimes the conversations are contentious, but, you know, I'd say three quarters of the time you're trying to empower them and make them, you know, have a good time and walk out of there and think they know more than the next guy does. Anyways, that's, that's a little bit of divergent off that question, but, but yeah, a lot, just get out in front of it. Be the biggest thing. Yeah. I love the comment, Josh, about bringing the membership in as though they are part of something. Cause I think that's, that's definitely a huge point that I think often gets overlooked at the private club level, but that I think you've touched on something pretty important there. Jim, I want to um, change gears a little bit. This was brought up earlier, um, the difference between just rotation versus the combinations that we're seeing that it seemed to be more um, prevalent throughout the industry now. Can you touch on a little bit of the work that you've done on, on strictly just rotating single chemistries versus the combination work? and, and long term resistance strategies therein. Sure. So I mean a lot of it started with, you know, turf turf kind of follows the lead of row crop agriculture and has for a long time. And they uh the the folks in row crop agriculture work to develop some models to try to simulate, okay, for what we know about the weeds we're trying to control and the and the chemistry that we have. Uh, what's going to move the needle the furthest in the direction we want it to go. And it was very clear from that work that, you know, we kind of started in turf with this being a new kind of a new thing and focus on rotation. And as those models in, in agronomic crops were developed, it was clear that mixtures kind of uh, were going to be more advantageous. So, you know, research kind of went that direction. And you think about it from a practical sense, it, it makes there, there's a lot of logic there. Um you think about a mixture, well, now we can combine maybe two uh, two different types of chemistry in that we can put a pre with a post. That's going to help us on the timing front where, 
you know, if maybe we don't have our pre-positioned perfectly against emergence because we don't really know with a weed like POA exactly when that's going to emerge and, and what the trigger conditions will be at, uh, across a wide geography, um, having a pre with the post is helpful because the post can take down any plants that may be emerged and then the pre will provide residual for the rest of the way. And I think the other thing that's helpful, Paul, and, and, I, and I don't know if this carries over into the disease world, but it might in, in that you look at a, a population of plants, well, not every plant in that population is going to be resistant to mode of action X. So if we put multiple modes of action out against that population, well, the ones that are resistant to mode of action X, as long as mode of action Y is in the mix, they'll be controlled. And the ones that are still susceptible will be controlled by both X and Y. Um, I think that's where the uh, where things have moved with why we've gone towards mixtures maybe as heavily as we we have. And you know, I think another thing, in the at least in the northern transition zone that we're seeing is that. Um, we're we're seeing more and more uh, poa annuus survive summer conditions for reasons that aren't uh, really part of a resistance conversation. But that also leads to well, now that mixture is going to help us if we have emerged plants at the time of application. But we may need to have multiple mixture apps go out uh, because some of those plants that may be um, let's call it dormant in the summertime. Well, they're not really going to show their uh, show their face in a in a dormant canopy of Bermuda grass until February or March, and that's going to require a subsequent treatment in addition to anything that we might do in the fall. Um, so, you know, this is one of those situations. The more we learn about it, the more we realize we don't know, and the more complex it becomes. But um, it, it's certainly fun to uh, kind of build the body of knowledge that. Uh, around this plant it's it's the most interesting plant in the maybe in the world it has been ha, have you been using that mixture versus single product rotation it, has that been one of your management strategies there at your facility i was going to say raymond real quickly like you know we did a bunch of tests this year where we we took the same mix and said okay let's do a mix versus a mix plus another app in the springtime uh, to kind of provide some insurance to the mix that was applied. And in, in every case, the uh, two-app program was better than the one-app program across the entirety of the state. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for, I mean, I, I think the timing, com the challenges of the timing component and the breadth of the window that you might have pressure, I think you need to be thinking about both the getting the multiple chemistries in and then if we can make this where you know we're making this into two maybe even three applications i think the better off or better off would be for control i can just i just feel like there was like a year where we nailed the front end of our pole window and then just kind of petered out you know and we're like man we really needed another bullet on the back end and so we've tried to do as much as we can to kind of spread those applications out and to just you know, have the multiple chemistries, but also have them over a period of time. And, and, and obviously playing to the strengths of those, the different chemistries, you know, and some are better on the front end and others are better on the back end. But I, I, yeah, I think that's a, using the multiple chemistries and as make it spreading the applications out is, is really helpful. 
So I mean, like this this next year tentatively, we'll make actually four applications if we stick with the plans that we have. And part of that's because we seem to have some germination down here in February. It's interesting because we've we're no longer really able to compartmentalize this program these programs into being like this is my summer annual program and this is my winter annual program. It's like nope, we're this is our freaking weed program. We need to figure <laughs> out how these are all bound to each other a little bit. And it's just it is what it is, but it kind of makes it bleed into it and it's more applications. And I think that's probably better than sitting there being like, we're going to spray once. I, I just think that's unrealistic. Well, as we're kind of getting towards the end of our, our time period here today, we did have a few questions that were submitted by some of our listeners. We put out an Instagram poll last week sometime, and directly from that, we have a few topics. Some of them, we've already covered some of them, but just want to cover more specifically. And one in particular, once herbicide resistance has been identified on a golf course, and this is, can be a question for both Jim and, and Josh, if we're looking at whatever the mode of action may be, what strategies have you guys found that work to mitigate the spread of that genetic trait, I guess, across the property? How can we confine the herbicide resistance to a small location? So that's a great question. Um, I think I know, I know, I might know who asked that question without being on uh, Instagram to confirm it. But, you know, I think it's really important. And I would say that from my work with superintendents and Josh, you can chime in here because you've seen it uh, in two states now. I kind of think we've been pretty late to the game on this. I, I don't think there's been situations where, at least in my in my work, where We've gotten on to an identification of I have a resistance problem early enough where containment has been part of the discussion. Like when I've come into these situations, it's maybe four to seven years of failed applications where like we've kind of already left the uh, the containment discussion. I mean, I would think if you think you have a problem now, I would I would certainly treat that situation with the respect that it deserves what that looks like without knowing the exact golf course, I can't say for sure. I mean, one thing I'd think, you know, that might get mowed last, right? So we're not tracking seed from that hole onto other holes. Um, that could be a hole that has a specialized program. You know, Josh talked about dividing his golf course into thirds. Well, maybe you're in a, in a situation where you don't have to do that, but maybe, you know, maybe hole number six gets a really special program because it's, got some really special features. Um, I, I I don't know. Yeah, Josh, do you have any thoughts from a practical superintendent side of how to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I'm assuming we're talking, you know, not we're not talking about, you know, starting rotations or shaking up chemistries, but you're in the middle of act actively, you've, you've done something, you have POA, and uh, it has broken through. And in that immediate moment, what's the plan as you move forward? I mean, I guess it depends on the scale of it. You know, sometimes I think we can, if, 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 if you're early, which, you know, like Jim said, I think that doesn't happen. Being open to the idea of having gotten resistance early doesn't happen a whole lot. But if you really are, I mean, you, you literally could go out and pull all those weeds, you know, if it's if it really is genuinely early. I mean, I think it's a I think it's a big enough of an issue at a time of a year when usually things have slowed down to some degree. And if you're sitting there saying, I got 100 plants per acre out there that are, or, you know, that I don't even know if that's a low amount or a lot, you know, as far as where you're at in the resistance game. But if it's in a sensitive spot, I mean, you literally could go out and 
and you know, put people out with the weed pullers and pull them. If it really is located in one area, I think what Jim's saying, I think you could figure out how to do that. And it's at a time of year where for a lot of properties, you're not mowing tons. I mean, it's not like there's tons of activities. Most everybody has at least slowed down to some degree, unless they're in an overseeded situation. Obviously that changes the game. So that's a, it's an interesting question. I, I have to, I'd have to think about that one more, but I would certainly, it sounds I, like- I, I, the one thing I would come back to is like, even if you don't have a resistance issue or you don't think you have a resistance issue, go ahead and start putting out multiple modes of action. Go ahead and start building a more sophisticated program right then and there because you'd rather be in front of it than behind it. And most of the time when you're behind it, you're really behind it. And, and I'd follow up and just say, you know, again, that your point about size and scope is well taken, Josh. I mean, you know, there's a world out there where that's sorted out. Right. You know, if it's an approach on number 12, well, then we could resod that approach in concept. Now, I would say that probably not a good assumption to assume that your sod's going to come in POA free and, and be devoid of any resistant POA as well. Um, so forming a relationship with wherever you're going to get that sod will be really important. You know, in a summer situation, if it was small enough, I mean, certainly there's a case to be made on the right surface type. You know, phrase mowing has been demonstrated, particularly in Bermuda grass, to be really effective. And we have a really cool project going on right now, phrase mowing collars. So Bermuda grass uh, collar and into kind of approach uh, next to bent grass greens with a walk behind unit with the idea that that's a really tricky environment for POA control uh, in that we have a limited things we can spray because we're so close to bent grass. We have overspray of fungicides, maybe a little bit of overthrow of irrigation water all summer long, plants that can persist in that system. Can we phrase more our way out of that? I wouldn't like I wouldn't be afraid of mechanical intervention if the area is small enough to warrant doing so. Yep. It sounds like we almost have an identification issue of uh, a timely identification, I guess I should say, more so than mitigation. It's you know, what's the trick in finding that herbicide resistant plant from the get-go before it becomes a, just a huge problem. Well, and also too, Jeff, I mean, I think there's a case to be made like, well, let's look at just the overall growing environment. You know, is this a, a, a part of the golf course where maybe my Bermuda grass is a little weak? Maybe this is an entry exit point off of a tee box or off of a greens complex where we've got extra traffic. Is this a, a heavy car traffic area? Is it heavier soil? I mean, there's an argument to be made resistance aside if we come into this portion of the golf course and maybe change the growing environment to be a little bit more advantageous for what we're trying to manage. It's going to help us resistance or not. Yeah, and it's and I think that's one of the things we and we haven't touched on in this conversation is I was I was on a roundtable about POA probably three years ago, I think, and it was really fascinating and, and I felt very convicted by it. But there's a, a I think they were from Indiana, but they were in cool season environments talking about POA issues. And most of their conversation was about like cultural practices, use of PGRs, fertilizer timing, you know, moisture management. And I'm like, why aren't we talking about that? All we talk about is is herbicides. You know, like there's we, we sit here and talk about these triangles and, you know, impacting all these other things. And and then when we get into a crisis thing, all we can think about is, you know, what are we going to spray? We don't have enough chemistries, which don't get me wrong. If you drop two new chemistries on my lap, I'd be thrilled. But there's so many other aspects to this that I mm-hmm. feel like for myself, we need to do better about 
on our property, you know, and to think through, you know, how does this impact if we do this now? How does this impact us with regards to not just POA, but lots of different things? And I, I think we, 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 we're not seeing the full breadth of the picture very often. Well, and, and, and there's a world out there that, I mean, Josh, you and I both were went to turf school in the north. And, and Paul, I know you're where you are in the country, too. I mean, there's a world out there where you can provide a highly desirable surface to a player that's got some POA in it. And, yep. and why we can't do that in a warm season realm, I'm not sure. I, I think we can. We just really haven't been forced to try. Sure. So we'll try to get to these questions that came in from the, the, the viewers or the listeners, if you will. And so one is it's a little broad, um, but it's specific to a particular type of or two types of grass. So pre-emergent strategies for POA control on zoysia grass, fairways and fescue rough. So, Jim, I know this is more of a transition zone kind of question, so I'll maybe give you first stab at it. So. Uh... I mean, again, it's it's a little wide. I mean, because my <laughs> my my first inclination is to go, well, what have we done in the past? Sure, right? Like, what's the program been beforehand? Because you know, this to me comes from a place of searching for a prescription, and I don't know that the prescriptions out there anymore. You know, if it's a conversation about lateral movement of like trying to say take something like spectacle that's labeled for use in zoysia grass and then put it on a golf course where it's got a sensitive species um, around the rough. Well, that's kind of a different discussion too. I mean, I know we've definitely seen some differences with uh, some of our phrase mowing work uh, with being able to move the needle in, uh, in Bermuda grass more so than zoysia grass um, in terms of overall POA reduction, which I've kind of chalked up to, um, the amount of thatch in a zoysia grass situation compared to a Bermuda grass fairway situation that I think in Bermuda grass, we're affecting more of the uh, seed bank of the soil okay. and, and the, the overall POA uh, that's there, where in a zoysia grass situation, the weight of that unit might just be removing a little bit more organic matter, thatch and mat, and a little bit less of the POA that we're trying to get out of there, which has effects on germinating Poa plants, you know, poa plants that can germinate in the thatch and be above uh, a herbicide that's that's placed into the soil. At the end of the day, that's probably a deeper discussion than we have time for. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Well, let me perhaps finish up with a, a question I'm sure that's on a lot of our listeners' minds. Are there chemistries being vetted to fight against this resistance or to become part of a of these programs? You know. Dr. Brosnan, have you seen, are people, are organizations introducing new chemistries to you that might serve as uh, something hopeful for the future? Yeah, I mean, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And and I think, you know, the ag, chemistry, ag chem industry has certainly seen this. We are not alone in turf in having resistance problems. And that has driven uh, a renewed effort into uh, active ingredient discovery. Um, we have experimentals in our lab that show some promise. You know whether or not they make it remains to be seen. Whether or not they make it and are priced at a price point where you could spray thirty or forty acres remains to be seen. Um, you know, and I, I think I will say this because there's one that's out Pokers out there, and I don't think the trade name of that product does it any favors. That you can have an AI, a novel mode of action, 
And it, it's not going to come in and solve every POA situation on every golf course. I mean, I could take you to golf courses right now where POA cure is not going to do what you would expect POA cure to do um, based on the resistance profile at that site. So these are going to be, if they make it, these will be really cool tools. They'll help us a lot. I'd encourage everyone to, to steward them in the right way and not repeat history um, when we have something that's that's really, really good. But it's uh, it'll, it would be a few years before we would have that conversation in, any deeper. Well, just to wrap up, Jim, I'd hate to have you on our podcast. I'd give you a chance to plug your um, your discussion to Tennessee Turf Tuesday. It's a good source of information discussion, very similar to kind of what we do here in some ways. I mean, what, how often does that play? Where can, where can folks find it? So, yeah, we, we try to do that on the, the first Tuesday of every month in the growing season. Uh, month of July gets a little tricky with the 4th of July being on Tuesday uh, this year. So we're actually uh, the second Tuesday in July. Um, but, yeah, you can you can sign up. Uh, we put it out there on all the social channels. Uh, my website, TennesseeTurfGrassWeeds.org. Uh, these are free webinars. We have pesticide credits in, I think, 14 or 15 states from uh, Michigan all the way to Hawaii and beyond. Um, and they're totally free. We just try to have a kind of, uh, like you said, Jeff, a free-form discussion like this uh, about a topic that's timely and relevant and, and help folks get the pesticide credits they need. They can get accreditation for a, a live listen and if they want to catch up with it after the fact, we put the, the archived uh, audio and video on the UT Turfgrass YouTube channel. And then the archived audio, um, we've got a, an Apple podcast feed for this year. So that's something that started during COVID that I didn't think would still be doing. But our attendance continues to remain strong. And there's, there's a demand to, uh, from folks to keep going. So we're going to keep going as long as they keep showing up. Cool. Any closing thoughts, guys? Josh, Jim? Uh, just, you know, for someone who's out there and struggling with resistance, you know, uh, stick with it. Work with, work with your, you know, your people, Dr. Brosnan, the, you know, other superintendents. And it will almost for sure cost you some money. But the, I think there's ways to kind of get back in the game on it and to not be overly discouraged. And for those of you who aren't dealing with resistance, great, but go ahead and pretend like you are and, and start mixing your chemistry <laughs> right now. And uh, that way you never have to, but that, that, that would be the biggest thing I'd say. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd second that and just, yeah, like you said, Josh, if you don't have resistance yet and you're in the uh, warm season turf grass growing zone, I'd probably go buy yourself a lottery ticket. Um, and then, you know, really not be afraid to uh, spend the mental capital, you know, really start to think through how you're going to do this work with your distributor reps, how you get your products at your facility and and try to design something that's going to be sustainable and you're uh, effective. Your university programs are out there to, to, to certainly help you. And, you know, I'll, I'll give a comparison that and this comes from a place of not being afraid to talk about it. Right. And talk about it openly. You know, I remember probably six or seven years ago in the Ultra Dwarf world, nobody wanted to talk about off types on ultra dwarf putting greens. I mean, it was almost taboo um, to talk about. And those that were talking about it were deemed crazy. And, and this wasn't a real thing. And I think now because we opened up and became more willing to talk about this as a problem in the industry, 
our overall awareness and knowledge and management of that issue is is better today than it was then. And, and my hope is the same will be true with, with the resistance in POA. Absolutely. Well, guys, we enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. I think we all learned something here. So thanks for your time and insight. Thanks for having Thank me. You. Thank you. Thanks so much. great. That wraps up our interview with Dr. Jim Brosnan and Josh Cook. A sincere thank you to the guys for their time. This show would not be possible without the willingness and cooperation of folks around our industry willing to share their stories with us. Turf Dudes exist to communicate important research findings and turf management trends to turfgrass managers as part of Harold's effort to grow a better world. If you enjoy the show, we want your feedback. If you have a topic you'd like for us to address or a person you'd like to hear from, please send it to us at turfdudes@heralds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. While you're at it, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, YouTube Music, or SoundCloud. We'll see you next time.